Reading is just a habit you gotta form in all of life. Books don't change people's sentences. Reading good, solid, reformed, spiritual literature, reading, especially the classics, that's had the biggest impact on my life. Well, good day and welcome to another episode of the Reformers Bookcast, a podcast hosted by Reformers Bookshop. My name is Tom Eglinton, the manager here at Reformers, and today we are joined uh, by a guest, Dr. Michael Haken. Thanks for joining us, Michael. My pleasure. Yeah, great to be with you. Uh, now, Michael, for, for those who don't know you, could you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, um, I'm full-time as a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where I am the chair of the Department of Church History and also teach in church history. Uh, I live in Canada, though, so I'm uh, by uh, adoption adopted country, uh, Canadian. I was born in England, grew up in uh, Birmingham and Coventry. Uh, my mother was Irish Catholic. My father was a Kurdish Muslim. Um, who had come to study in England in the 40s and married my mom. And uh, my grandfather, uh, my Irish grandfather, required my dad to become a Catholic to marry my mom. So I was raised uh, Catholic. And uh, we came to Canada uh, in the 60s when I was 12. And um, I got caught up in a lot of the kind of uh, left-wing politics of that period, the the daily kind of watching the Vietnam War being televised in your living room kind of really heavily politicized me. Right. And uh, for a number of years, I would have been a professing Marxist. Not an atheist, I don't think. I, I think I would have been probably agnostic. But through a circumstance, through a series of providences, God brought me to faith in Christ in the uh, early 70s and was baptized as a believer. Sensed a call to vocational ministry, uh, thought missionary, pastor, had no idea that it would be academic. But within a year of my starting studies at Wycliffe College, which is an evangelical Anglican seminary in Toronto, Ontario, um, I began to realize that the academic route was probably uh, the the pathway that God was calling me. Mm. And so I went on to do a PhD there in patristics and uh, taught for a number of years at a Baptist seminary in Toronto called Central Baptist Seminary, which is now... Uh, Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario, where I still do some teaching. Uh, it's a f- about half an hour from where I live. Uh, but in the early 2000s, um, through, again, a series of interesting circumstances, God brought me to, to Southern, which has been a fabulous experience. Um, the quality of students, the the potential for impact for the kingdom has been just re- remarkable. I mean, Southern is around 6,000 students, which wow. is just... Yeah, it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling for Canadians uh, and for the rest of the kind of Anglophone uh, <laughs> evangelical world. It, it yep. just is, yeah. And significant number of PhD students. So a lot of my time is spent with uh, uh, really training historians. Okay. So, um, I'm married. I, um, my wife was instrumental in my conversion. She's Scottish. And we have two children, a daughter who lives in Vienna. Uh, Austria, where she is involved in banking, and then a son who's a lawyer. Um, so, your father, who you said was mu- Muslim, and your wa- and your mother Catholic, and your father converted to Catholicism. Was he? Were either of them very religious at all in their practice of either of those religions? Yeah, no, my father was not. Uh, my father, well, my, my father did become very 
very, very Catholic. Mm. But my mother was, um, she came from a very strong Catholic family. Uh, my great grandmother was a Presbyterian who, from Scotland, who went to Ireland to work in one of the Anglo Irish homes and ended up marrying the gardener against the wishes of her family. And um, uh, he was a very strong Catholic. So she became an ardent Catholic and she was very influential in the entire family. Huh. Um, I remember her as a very young child. She would be in, in her 90s. She came to live with an aunt, one of my aunts in Birmingham. And um, so it's a, it's a family that prayed for, you know, that God would give them a priest or a nun. Uh, I don't think a church history prof in a Baptist <laughs> seminary. That's it. Um, my mother was converted, though. Uh, she died very young. Um, in 76, when I was in my 20s, she was 43. But wow. two years before that, she was converted, really solidly wow. converted. And my father, uh, it pushed him deeper into Catholicism, her death. Uh, but in the last few years, he's now suffering from a degree of dementia. But in the last few years, he has told me that his only faith is in Christ. Oh, wow. And so I trust and hope that he has a genuine uh, saving experience of, of our Lord. And so was so you had some understanding then of Christianity, presumably. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, growing up in England in the, in the 60s, I mean, you would, the day always began in school with prayer, um, the singing of the national anthem, uh, God Save the Queen. And then hymns. I, I don't. I, I knew hymns. Um, Onward, Christian soldiers, for instance. Mm. Um, so yes, I would have had uh, the tail end of a cultural Christianity. Yeah. Uh, I didn't go to a Catholic school. My daughter, my sister, was sent to a Catholic school. I'm not sure why my parents didn't send me to a Catholic school, but I went to a, a public school and then a grammar school. Right. Uh, what What's known as a public school in England. Um. And were you, have you always had an interest in history in general? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, if you'd asked me when I was six or seven what I wanted to be, I, I would have told you uh, studying history, however I understood that, or archaeology, uh, either of those. I've, I've, I've always loved history, yeah. Do you, do you think that came from somewhere or was it just something you God, God gave you? I wonder, to- you know, I wonder, I think it's God-given, but I wonder if it, it has something to do with my father's refusal really to talk about his roots and a sense of rootlessness. Yeah. Um, so for instance, you know, I'm in, I'm in my sixties, but I just found out about a number of my father's siblings this year. Um, I've never seen pictures of my paternal grandfather till this year. Um, it's amazing. So my father really kind of kept that world from us. And I wonder if my interest was, you know, exacerbated by his silence about his, his life. Um, my mother was very interested in, in uh, Gaelic. She was taught, she went to a Catholic school and was taught Gaelic by the nuns and she won an awarding in that. But I, I tend to think I'm mean, well, the earliest book I can ever remember reading as a child was a child's version of the Iliad. There you go. I have no idea where that came from, who got it for me. I assume my mother, maybe, my father wouldn't have, he was an electrical engineer and he really didn't read outside his field. He wouldn't have even probably uh, thought of getting it for me. But anyway, I, I I look back and see as, you know, when I was converted, it was this this long-standing interest in history was just rekindled in a, in a new direction. I like that, you know, because 
I mean, my my childhood was somewhat shaped by the books that sat on my parents' shelves. I don't know. I don't really think they thought about books from that perspective. Of yeah, you know, I'm just going to leave this book lying around, and my kid might look at it. Um, <laughs> have 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 you seen your kids at all influenced by the books that you've had around? Or yeah, my daughter is very very bookish. Um, uh, just an avid reader, mm. um, and um, very much very interested in things like say Russian literature. Um, Pushkin, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, um, 20th century fiction, um, which he probably... Did you have those things lying around Well, yeah, not a lot of, you know, John Buchan, the Scottish author, uh, Tolkien Lewis. I mean, we read Tolkien Lewis to them. Yeah. Um, She has a fairly substantial library of her own, a lot of which she's left with us boxed up because she couldn't take it to Austria. So my son is, uh, he too has a bookish side to him, but not as much as my daughter. Mm. I, I definitely agree with you. Um, I mean, although my father didn't encourage me, I think in, in terms of one area, you know, history, um, his life was surrounded by books too, but it was engineering. Right. So some of my early earliest memories are of books, yep. you know, kind of bookshelves with books on them. Yeah. Uh, and being taken, he taught at Warwick University um, in uh, just outside Coventry. And so, again, being taken to the university as a child would have, you know, that that whole world of academia, I, I basically I've lived in all my life, yeah. I reckon that could be a fascinating study, the the childhood of some of the greats from church history. <laughs> yes, it, uh, I hadn't thought of that. Yes, yes, it, yeah. Yeah, you know, certainly, I mean, in some cases we have, we don't, a lot of cases we don't have the details, but in many cases, you know, somebody like C.S. Lewis, for example, mm. um, or Martin Lloyd-Jones, I would imagine with those two men that we probably do have a significant amount that we could, you could do a study like that. Yeah, okay, uh, so let's let's move then a little to church history. I think that, that um, these days, it seems to me at least that history is something that, we need to recover. Um, there's it seems like a lot of the issues that we see today could be resolved just by looking back a little bit. Um, do you, do you, in your experience, have you seen that Christians engage enough with church history, or do we need to focus more on this area? I think I think we do need to engage more with history. Um, they one of the reasons why we 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 need to church historians within the body of Christ is because there is a significant amount. Well, there's enough bad history out there, um, history that's completely off the wall, but also um, history that is has elements of veracity in it, but it really doesn't tell the whole story in its complexity sometimes, and um, you know, for instance, in the in the United States in the last couple of years, the whole issue of race has kind of emerged again. Uh, I don't think it's ever been quiescent in the States, you know, going way back. But it's come back with a bit of a interesting twist uh, because there have been some proponents arguing that right from the get-go, uh, you know, America has been a racist society, uh, a slaveocracy, and uh, it 
it's associated with a thing called the 1619 Project, which was launched by New York Times. And it builds on the fact that the first Africans were sold into slavery in America in 1619 at Jamestown. And it disputes the idea that the Puritans who landed in New England, in Plymouth Bay, and then subsequent landings in Massachusetts in the 1620s and 30s, that that really is the kind of heartland of American, you know, foundations. Uh, and um, the, 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 the history that is being talked about has been heavily politicized. Mm. And um, it's difficult, I think, for the ordinary Christian to be able to make heads or tails of, you know, when you get this person claims to be an expert, um, you know, how, how do I respond to them? Um, so that's one small area in which I think it's helpful. Um, here uh, here in Ontario, for example, uh, in recent days, there's been a brouhaha regarding a man named Edgerton Ryerson, who was a major Methodist leader in the 1820s through the 1870s. And um, he was instrumental in setting up the public school education in Ontario, and he was instrumental in preventing the Church of England uh, to basically establish itself as the established church, as they had done in England. They wanted to do that in Ontario. There was a massive political battle. Edgerton Ryerson was, though, was also involved in uh, trying to educate some of the indigenous people and set up what became known as residential schools, which have had a horrific history. Mm. Uh, In the 20th century, they've been responsible for um, really trying to destroy uh, every element of indigenous culture. Um, But... Uh, Ryerson is only really tangentially involved with the origins of them. But there is a university in Toronto called Ryerson University that has just gone through a major battle. A statue of him was defaced, pulled down. They've renamed the university to this kind of mundane, ridiculous name, the Metropolitan Toronto University. There already is the University of Toronto where I went. Uh, I I, I think like who came up with this blah name, but whatever. Um, And... Uh, I was really frustrated. I'm not a Canadian historian per se, Canadian history, but I have done a fair amount of work in Canadian evangelicalism. And I thought this is just a, it's a wrong understanding of, of, of Ryerson. Ryerson probably wouldn't have shared maybe our attitudes towards indigenous people. Uh, Many people in the British empire, I'm sure Australia is no different uh, in the 19th century had elements of white superiority but be that as it may, uh, there was just a failure to understand this man for all the good that he did. Mm. And the, just the complexity of history and trying to render judgments on past attitudes. So um, I, I think that those are two very small examples uh, of why history is important. Um, uh, you know, recently there's been a, a, in Christian circles a brouhaha regarding Thomas Aquinas mm. and reading Thomas uh, in reform circles. And again, I'm not a medievalist. In fact, one of the areas that I've really kind of a lacuna in my education is Thomas. I haven't read much of Thomas at all. I mean, I, I know that the reformers are often critical of him in terms of certain areas of his thought. But again, there's been a, a certain uh, prominent voices have been a very strong negativity towards Thomas, whereas in fact the Puritans and Reformed scholastic tradition, Reformed orthodoxy, as Richard Muller has described it, um, 
it's more complex. And um, so we, we need historians. We, we need we need them to to um, help us understand how the how past thinkers thought, how to, how to read the past. We, we need, we need people to help us. Yeah. Uh, it's being said that the past is a foreign country. They th- they do things differently there. <laughs> and that's so true. Yep. Um, and so where, where would you start then? Um, where would you recommend people to start in terms of church history in particular? Well, I, I, I tend to, I mean, well, when I teach church history, we, we do it in, you know, at the introduction to church history, which is your kind of introductory level, we do the early church through the medieval, and then we do the modern beginning with the, you know, the late medieval period, 1300 is where I normally begin the second course to the modern day. And we expect students to take the early before the first. And there's a reasons for that because of chronological development, etc. But in some ways, it's better to begin with the Reformation mm. Uh, because the earlier period is, there is a lot more difficult there, and uh, in terms of language and concepts, and sometimes it's easier to begin with people who sound like us. That you begin to realize, well, it's it's often like the situation. So, for instance, um, as a Canadian who grew up in England, um, I'm very aware that I share obviously a common language with America and Americans. Uh, but there are little things that they just do not understand about us as Canadians. And I'm sure the same is true with Americans and Australians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we share a common language, um, but there are differences, and uh, those differences are subtle. And so I, I tend to think probably the best place to begin is maybe with your own tradition. So I, hmm. you know, I, 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 I frequently... Uh, do uh, Saturday lectures in churches where I'll go and do, you know, morning of lectures and we're out of there by noon and we do two or three lectures and we look at maybe um, a Baptist figure like Andrew Fuller or William Carey or Spurgeon. And there's a, first of all, there's a, uh, my hope is to kindle a recognition that we can learn from the past and there are riches in the past, but also to kindle the recognition that there are little things where these people didn't think like us. There is so much where they're similar. They sound like us, but there's little things. And so you're beginning to awaken people to realize that there are there is a diversity even within our own tradition. Mm. And from there, you can then build uh, to looking at, say, you know, the church fathers, And with some churches, I've had a long-standing arrangement where, you know, every year I'll go back and do a a church history day. And I usually begin with the the Reformers or the Baptists or whatever. And then maybe two or three years down the road, then I go, okay, this year we'll do Athanasius and Augustine. And you've you've got people already, they're appreciative of history. They realize that they they need to, to understand history, and they're more open to listening to somebody who doesn't sound like them at all and and so on. Yeah, and that's actually a really helpful um, movement into your latest book that we'll talk about. But before we get there, um, I just wanted to mention another book that you've co-written, Church History 101, which it, we'll, we'll get to what you were talking about in terms of appreciating the depth of church history. But this will give you an overview of church history so that you can sort of see the lay of the land. And I've 
I found it um, very well put together. It's a, just a couple of pages on each century. Um, just very helpful in terms of orientation. So thanks for Thank thanks for putting <coughs> that together. Um, but then I, li- I like what you said about gaining an appreciation of learning from the past because your latest book, Iron Sharpens Iron, Friendship and the Grace of God, which is here. Um, I've read a couple of books on friendship. There, there aren't heaps of them, which maybe we can talk about. But this book I loved because you came at it from a church history perspective. You picked up a, a few characters in the 18th century Baptist world and you showed us what their friendship looked like, um, which I, I found incredibly helpful. And so it really feeds into the point you're making that it, this book is is a book on friendship, but it's but it does give you an appreciation of church history. Um, did you? How is it? Just did that just flow out of the way that you think, <laughs> in terms of developing it that way? Um, is that is that just um, how you generally approach topics? In terms of uh, and looking looking in the past and going, well, how how, do, how have people looked at this before? Yeah, I mean, to to, to some degree, um, <clears throat> I'm I'm very conscious that, um, and it's it's it, 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 it's a consciousness has been developed because I've immersed myself uh, in the past that you, you're going along and suddenly you read something and you realize. That, that, that assumption doesn't fit my world at all. Mm. Here's a Christian who just doesn't, I, I can't see, I, I can't understand where they're coming from on this. And then as a historian, I want to know why, 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 why did they yeah, think yeah. that way? Um, that's, so on the, on the, go ahead. Oh, that, that's great because I mean, I had multiple moments like that, particularly in the first chapter. I remember some first chapter is worth the price of the book, by the way, it's fantastic. Um, where you just give a bit of a very brief historical view of the way friendship was viewed. I'm trying to find it now. I'm not going to be able to find it, but here we go. Gregory. Um, I've got to work out which Gregory. Gregory of Nazianus in the 300s. I probably said that wrong. You quote him as saying, if anyone, if anyone were to ask me what is the best thing in life, I would answer friends. I thought that was astonishing because I was like, come on, how can a Christian be saying that? Um, did you want to talk to us a bit about the way that friends were viewed, particularly early on in in church history? Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, you mentioned earlier that, you know, we, we've had a dearth of books about friendship and that that's exactly your, your, your experience or your observation is exactly correct. Uh, somewhere in the 20th century, this, this topic completely dropped off the radar. Um, and only recently has it become a topic for discussion. And so this book probably reflects a growing interest in the subject. But if you go back to the 18th century and earlier, um, you would find books uh, that deal with Christian morality that would raise this question. Uh, what is a friend? How do you develop friendships? How do you continue them? How do you end them? Um, why do friendships end, etc.? And that actually reflects a whole tradition of wisdom in the Western world that goes back to the Bible and to the Greeks. 
I mean, we, we, we really have these kind of twin foundations in Western civilization and Western culture. We have the Bible. You can't understand Western history without the Bible. That, that's just a given. But also we have the Greeks and the Romans. And um, the Greeks and the Romans, typified, for instance, here by Aristotle in his um, uh, ethics, uh, his Nicomachean ethics, where he has two of the chapters, large chapters, on the topic of friendship. Um, friendship was a philosophical problem for the Greeks and the Romans, a philosophical issue. Um, and in the Bible, you have similar, you, you have nuggets of wisdom, but again, it comes from that same recognition that friends are very, very important to, to life. Um, the sort of individualism that has become part and parcel of Western culture beginning in the 13th century uh, being exacerbated, interestingly enough, by the Protestant Reformation, because in the, the Protestant Reformation rightly emphasized the importance of the, the you yourself must answer before God. But the, the downside of that could be an, uh, an exacerbation of the ind individual over against the collective experience. The ancient world doesn't have that. Uh, give a good example here in um first corinthians chapter 7 verses 1 through 5 paul talks about the the intimate relations between a husband and a wife and at one point he says in verse 5 that there may be occasions when that intimacy is um put on the back burner as it were for the sake of prayer mm. um if you read any 20th century commentator and I, I'm, I'm thinking here of between 1900 and 1970s, 1980s, when I did the study of it, uh, they all uniformly said that what happens, what, what Paul's talking about is a, a Christian couple decide to devote themselves to prayer within the household. And uh, because of the time taken up with that, they don't have time for, for intimacy. If you read any early Christian commentator up through Bede, 6th century, when they talk about that passage, it's, got to do with the church has called for a series of meetings for prayer huh. and the time getting to the church, spend to the ch in the church, etc., doesn't prov allow you the time for intimate relations. In other words, uh, it's a communal experience that Paul's talking about rather than an individual experience, an individual couple who's better understood that passage. I think the early church, I think the patristic authors have got that passage much better because they, they're coming from the same world as Paul. So that gives you some idea of the difference between individuality and the communal. Yeah. So in that world of community, friendship is absolutely invaluable. That is fascinating because I've, I've read a few books lately on um, the, the interrelation between the Roman view of piety and, and its linked the fact that it's linked to duty and relationship. Yes. Um, whereas we think of piety as that time in the morning where you don't talk yes. to anybody. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. And so it's fascinating that you say that because, yeah, it it really is quite a different world from, from the one that we live in. And, um, you know, I think generally if I think about my life and friends that I would say are my friends um, – I've often thought I don't have many. Um, I've often thought they don't they don't seem as deep as they, it seems that they should be. Um, 
Do you think that's just my experience, or is that generally your, from your? I, I think life I think your experience is very common to the Western Anglophone male, right. um, and I use the word Anglophone to cover Australia, New Zealand, uh, Britain, um, North America. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know about the you know French or Italian, you know those those sort of contexts, but I think I think in you know, I think of my father, um, who was 16 when he came to, to England, and he basically he basically embraced Western culture, hook, line, and sinker, for which I'm deeply grateful in many ways. Um, but in doing so, he, I never saw him with friends, hardly. Mm. My father-in-law, very Scottish, uh, had no friends. I mean, I, there were never men who came to the house who would spend time with my grandfather. Now, again, uh, that could have been his own individual personality. I tend to think, though, it's it's got to do a little bit with Scottish culture. I think English can be the same. Irish, again, is different there. Uh, I would suspect Australia is a, a bit different with the whole idea of mates, um, yeah. that yeah. world. Um, but I do think, I do think that Men are starved for friendship. Now, one of the things I noticed in in your book, and also when you talk, when uh, I think you, if you look at say Jonathan and David, for example, or even Paul, Paul and Timothy, you you do a great study of Paul and Timothy in the book. Um, you quote, I can't remember who it is, but you quote a woman early on talking about friendships, and she talks about how um, friendships are. Uh, and op- uh, someone who you can bear your soul to. And then when you talk through the uh, 18th century Baptist men uh, in the latter part of the book, it seems to me that their friendship lar- largely re- revolved around um, mission. You know, they, they started the Baptist Missionary Society together and, and really pushed that. It revolved around reading books together and, um, and theology um, do am I getting that? Is is was there a difference in the way that women viewed friendship and men? Is, is there? Yeah, I'll let you talk to that. Yeah, that's a, that's an astute observation. Um, essentially, no. Okay. So the language that men use, um, and I, I don't quote many of these letters in the book. Um, but sometimes if you read the letter without knowing who was writing it, let's say you, you know it's a man writing it, but without knowing to whom it was written, you might think he was writing sometimes to his wife. Huh. The depth of love that they expressed to each other. Um, men in the 18th century wept publicly. Hmm. I mean, Whitfield weeping was not odd at all. Um, Andrew Fuller um, sometimes would would be so deeply moved publicly that he too would weep. Um, And then in the 19th century, this all changes. In the 19th century, there is the emergence. um, It'd be interesting to know to what degree did the, the emergence of the public school, the grammar school and uh, the educational boys uh, particularly in the Roman classics and the Stoic tradition, Stoicism. 
Ah, interesting. To what degree did that reshape Victorian culture? But I definitely know that by the early 20th century, um, men were not expected to cry publicly or weep publicly. That was something women did. Men don't do that. And uh, so I think to some degree, our Western Anglophone culture, which has so, so much of riches because of its Christian roots and blessing for the world, has also certain elements of, of problems. And one of them, I think, has been the repression of affection, the affections. Mm-hmm. Um, you read Edwards, for instance, and just the, the depth of affection th- that he would feel at certain times and able to express. I, I just think in the, in the, in the, the, the larger cultural tradition as it moves into the 19th and 20th centuries, the, the, there's a lack of that. And that impacts the whole way in which men relate to one another. Yeah. Um, now the problem is we live in a highly sexualized culture. Yeah. And I think probably a lot of men are afraid of expressing love for each other um, because they might be deemed homosexual. And that's another problem we have to wrestle with. Um, but you read, you read Paul, Second Timothy. You read Second Timothy. You, you know, you, when I last saw you, you, you're, I reminded of your tears. Mm. And then the way he ends that letter: "Please come before winter." He says it twice: "Please come as soon as you get this," and then "Please come before winter." Second Timothy four, uh, nine, and then nineteen. I think of the text. It was desperate um, for Timothy's company. Yeah. Yeah, it's it is a it's it's quite different, I think, from our world in some some ways. So, what then? Um, what are some practical things that you've sort of tried to change in how you have friends um, as you've looked at this topic? I, I, it seems to me, from reading, that you've looked at it for for several years now. So, um, have, what is what are some of the practical learnings in how you've changed your life? Yeah, one of the things I've realized is that friends take time. Mm. And if you're going to have solid friendships, you have to go out of your way to create contexts where you can spend time with people who are your friends. And then as you do that, uh, you, 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 it can't be, you know, every Tom, Dick and Harry, obviously. There are, you're not, you're not going to have tons and tons of these people. But you have to be prepared, be prepared to be vulnerable. And I remember a man sharing with me um, that he said um, he was a professor at a theological seminary, and I was horrified by what he said to me. He said, I encourage my students, first of all, you shouldn't have friends in your congregation. Well, not good as a pastor. And then he said, uh, in fact, I encourage men don't have other pastors as your friends, because if you tell them anything, they'll use it against you. And I'm thinking, <laughs> so don't, don't have any friends at all. <laughs> don't have any friends. And I think you. I think we have to be prepared to be hurt. Yeah. And to be vulnerable. And in some ways, we we see this in our Lord's life that He chose Judas. Yeah. Yeah. That that's fascinating that you pick up on those two things time and vulnerability or willing to be open and potentially hurt because um after reading your book i 
you didn't structure it in this way. I didn't see those two principles being pulled out exactly, but uh, as I reflected on friendship after your book, I thought those exact two same things. Um, so the book somehow communicated it <laughs> through the way that it worked. Good, good. Yeah. Um, and look, I, I hope that that your book and, and this interview encourages others to look into friendship, um, the different aspects of it that you explain and, and um, come to the same conclusions and seek to change their life in that way as well. Thank you. Yep. So thanks very That'd much for, for writing the book, Michael, and thanks for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Reformers Bookcast. Uh, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next time.